Last week we looked at Job chapter 3, and we looked at how Job was shockingly honest about his doubt and despair, and I hope that whether you are suffering or with those who are suffering, that you were helped. It is very important if you're suffering and when you suffer, it is very important that you be honest about your suffering before God and before others. When people ask you how you're doing, if you're not fine, you shouldn't say fine. That's a lie. If you are with people who are suffering, it is important for you to be patient with them. It's important for you to be patient, to let them be honest with you. It's important when you ask people how they are doing to mean it. And the basis for this expressed and received honesty is God's patience with Job. As he was, again, shockingly honest with his suffering in chapter 3. So that was last week. So this morning, as promised, I would like to biblically address the problem of evil as it is commonly called, or the problem of pain, or the problem of suffering. So I'll use those terms synonymously this morning. The problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. Where there is one, there is all three. Where there is evil, there will be pain, there will be suffering. Specifically, the problem it presents for those who say there is a God. That is the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. It does, if we're honest, that does present a problem for those who say that there is a God. It's a problem that's been around for a long time. I'm sure people have been feeling this problem since the beginning of creation. It's a problem that has been formally identified and written down as early as three centuries before Christ was born. Three centuries before Christ was born, the Greek philosopher Epicurus said it basically like this, stating this problem of evil. Here's how he put it over 2,000 years ago. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able then he is weak. Is God able but not willing? Then he is mean. Is God both able and willing to prevent suffering? Then why is there evil in the world? Those are good questions. If God is all-powerful, 
and evil exists, then he must not be all good. If he's all good and evil exists, then he must not be all powerful. But if he is, as we claim, at least as Christians claim, if God is all-powerful and all-good, then how do we explain all the evil in the world? So this is the problem. Let me make that question more personal. Because it often is more personal. If God loves me and is able to prevent my suffering, why doesn't he? So it's a theoretical problem and occasionally it's a personal problem. So these are the questions that I'd like to look at this morning and the book of Job takes us there. Perhaps like any other book in the entire Bible. So it's a good thing for us to talk about. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning with Bibles and I hope hearts and minds open. Will you help us to understand your word? I pray that you would help us to know things that we don't already know and help us to feel things toward you that we need to. I pray that our love for you would increase today, our affection for you would increase today, and God, would you show us what needs changing in our actions and our behavior, our words, our beliefs. Help us uh, by your word. And through the work of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at five biblical truths this morning about evil and pain and suffering. So here they are. Here are the five biblical truths, and then we'll get into them. Number one, the world is full of evil and suffering. Number two, we let the evil and suffering in. Number three, God is sovereign over evil and suffering. Number four, God is good. Number five, evil and suffering are used by God for his glory and the good of his people. So that's where we're headed. Let's start with number one. Number one, the world is full of evil and suffering. I'll spend the least time supporting this truth because I think it's self-evident. The world is full of evil and suffering. You know this. You've seen this. Some of you have experienced this. You've seen human evil like the Holocaust, you've seen natural evil like the 
2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, you know what evil is. But before we move on to the second point, I do want to make a quick suggestion that I hope will be helpful. I want to suggest that the reality of evil is just as big a problem for the person who does not believe in God as it is for the person who does believe in God. So this sermon started by saying this is a problem for Christians. This is a problem for those who believe in God. The reality of evil and pain and suffering in the world. But before we get any farther, I would suggest that it's not just a Christian problem. That that's not just a problem for those who believe in God. It is also a problem for those who don't believe in God. So again, here is the problem for me as a believer in God, as a Christian, here is the problem of evil put to a believer. If God exists, how can you explain the reality of so much evil in the world? But now, here is the problem of evil put back to someone who does not believe in God. If God does not exist... How can you call anything evil? So think about this for just a couple minutes. I think it's important. Many of us, whether we are Christians or not, we know from a very young age the difference between right and wrong. We know the difference between good and evil. We have a sense of Morality. Now, a Christian attributes this sense of good and evil, of right and wrong, to God. This is a biblical worldview. This would be my worldview. If you're a Christian, this is probably your worldview that God is good. And we, you and I, all of us, have been created in His image. He has written His truth of what is good and what is not on our hearts, which is our conscience. And he has put his truth, not only written on our hearts, he has put his truth into words, which we have collected in this Bible. So, for me, to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, I take, we take, and inform my conscience With the word of God. So God is the standard of what is good. And that's the ground that I stand on when I determine what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. So to someone who does not believe in God, what is your standard? To someone who does not believe in God, what is the basis for morality? How can you say that anything is good or evil? How can you say that anything is right or wrong? Says who? Says an individual? Says 
popular opinion, it is very difficult without God to actually nail down what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, because it depends on who you ask. Were the events of September 11th, 2001 evil? Well, it depends who you ask. It depends who you ask if you don't believe in God. To a radical Islamic terrorist, it was a very good day. Or maybe even closer to home, is abortion evil? It depends who you ask. Christians would say abortion is wrong. A Christian would say that abortion is evil. But on the other side, you know this. Pro-choice supporters would say it is wrong, it is evil to deny a woman control over her own body, to deny her reproductive freedom. This is how it would be put. And it would be said that it is wrong and it is evil to deny her that. Now, as Christians, remember a biblical worldview rather than a naturalistic worldview, for Christians, we hopefully, unashamedly, answer the question of what is evil from God's word. That's how we make these determinations. They're not arbitrary. It's not, what do you think? And let's get together and let's have these social constructs of what is right and wrong, and that may evolve over time, what is right and wrong, and, and what is good and evil in this culture is different than what is good and evil in this culture. No, we have moral absolutes, we would say. This is always right, that's always wrong, this is good, this is evil. Because our standard is God. Our standard is His Word. We answer the question, what is right, what is wrong, from God's word. But what if you don't believe in God? How can you explain that? So it's a problem. It's a problem still. Let me quote Timothy Keller and then we'll move on. The most appalling kinds of evil involve human cruelty and wickedness. Stalin and Pol Pot. Hitler and his henchmen. But could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. An atheistic way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort, and thus no way to say there is any such thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. Atheism can speak of foolishness, acting contrary to what you take to be your own interest, but it cannot accommodate appalling wickedness. So all that to say that getting rid of God does not help this problem of evil. Number two. We let the evil and the suffering in. I don't mean just us in this room. I mean people. People. Let the evil and suffering in to the world. Sin, the Bible calls it sin. Disbelieving 
God, disobeying God, disregarding God, dishonoring God. Sin, the Bible teaches us, is evil. And sin always leads to pain and suffering. Always. A world with sin is a world with suffering. A world without sin, heaven, is a world without suffering. So all pain and all suffering is the result of sin in this world. No sin, that's what heaven's going to be like, then no pain and suffering. It all is downstream of sin. And how did, you know where we're going, how did sin get into the world that led to all this pain and suffering? We let it in. The Bible tells us God made the world. He made it good. And people let the evil in. And we're still letting it in. Every single one of us in this room has caused pain and suffering. That's a hard reality. But it's true. Every single one of us has said and done things that have led to others' suffering. Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, you know the story. They were born truly innocent. They were born with wills that were not in bondage. And when tempted by Satan, they sinned. They believed the evil lie that they'd be better off without God. So they cast God off. They went their own way, and what happened? They did not find the joy or happiness that was promised to them. They found grief. They found shame. They found pain. They found suffering. And we've been finding it ever since as a result of sin. Now, that first sin in the garden was, we've used this phrase before, it was a cataclysmic catastrophe. It wasn't contained. It wasn't isolated in that garden. It was a big bang. It affected and changed everything. You know, it did not just affect humanity. It affected all of creation. I mean, Adam and Eve sinned, and now they were sinners, and all their kids were sinners, and here, you, here we are way down the line. We're still sinners. But it didn't just affect humanity, it affected all of creation. Did you know that? God, according to, for example, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23, even after sin entered the world, subjected the entire natural world. Everything went haywire. The world is now groaning. The world is now trembling. The world has been affected even by sin. It changed everything. Everything. So that today, everywhere you look, you can see the effects of sin. Sin is the root of death, murder, rape, and all human atrocities. Sin is also the root of earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, and all natural disasters. That's what sin did to God's good, perfect world. William Plummer said, every sigh and groan from earth or hell 
Every cry wrung from distress of conscience is the fruit of sin. Sin has dug every grave, built every prison, even hell itself. So we let the evil in. We're part of the problem of pain and suffering. Now this prompts a question for me. I'm inquisitive by nature. I find when I'm reading the Bible that it always leads to lots of questions and I have a compulsion to try to answer all the questions. So this truth specifically, Adam and Eve, we people, we let the evil in. That prompts a question because I say, okay, so I'm, I'm with God's word so far. The world is full of evil and suffering because we listened to the evil devil. You're all with me. So here's my question. So now I want to know, well, how did he get evil? That's the question. So who tempted him? How did he get like that? So to answer that question, I want you to turn with me to the book of, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. There are tons of things that I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to know the answer to that question. I used to be in... Uh, when I would first start teaching classes in churches, I never wanted to have a period of time at the end of class where I took questions. And for a long time, I never took questions. I just teach, oh, sorry, we're out of time. We'll have to save the questions for next week. And people start to catch on going, he never lets us ask any questions. I'll just email them, and then I'll just, you know, I'll say they got lost in the junk or something. Now, why? Why do I not want to? What was my fear? Why don't I want to have that question time at the end of my teaching? Do you know what my fear was? That I'm not going to know the answer. And if I don't know the answer, I'm going to look stupid. And you're asking me, I assume, because you think I'm going to give an answer. So I'm afraid. What is my fear? That I'm going to have to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, here's what I learned. One of the best things Christians can do is say, I don't know. That that doesn't mean that it's not true. That doesn't mean that your faith is bogus. That doesn't mean anything more significant that at that moment you don't know the answer to that question. So it's, it's humility. And so often we don't want to say, I don't know. So we just, just make something up. And we honestly think it'd just be better to just sort of make something up than to say, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I don't think the Bible gives us an answer to that question. That's my personal opinion. There's some stuff about the devil and how, how he got the way he is. And I'm not, even, me pers- I'm not even sure about those passages that they're talking about him. And I'm not convinced, persuaded. I just don't know. So we stick to what we know. 
What we do know is that Adam and Eve were tempted, that they were totally innocent before that, and their wills were totally free and, and, and not in any kind of bondage, no inclination to evil. They'd never sinned, and they sinned, and it changed everything. That enough is, is clear in God's word. So, number two, we people, we let the evil and the suffering in. Number three, God is sovereign over evil and suffering. For God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Evil and suffering does not happen without God's permission. This has been made obvious to the reader of the book of Job. Hasn't it? I mean, we're reading the book of Job and the author has taken us behind the scenes and we've watched God permit Satan to bring suffering Job's way. Martin Luther put it provocatively. He put everything provocatively when he said the devil is God's devil. What a thing to say. That, that is what we see in Job, isn't it? The devil, is, he needs permission from God to do anything. And then once he gets God's permission, he gets limitations put on him by God. Even Job himself, who did not have a Bible, he knew that God was sovereign over evil and suffering. In chapter 1, verse 10, and in chapter 2, verse 10, he identifies God as the source of the evil that had come his way. And that's how he puts it. And then the author is even quick both times to say, hey, Job's not sinning when he says that. Because we might think, whoa, did Job just say that that evil has ultimately come his way from God? That's blasphemous. And the author comes in and says, he didn't sin in anything that he said. What do we see happening? Job knows point number three. Job knew that God was sovereign over his evil and suffering. Now we, unlike Job, we've got a whole Bible. And a thorough reader of the Bible knows that God is sovereign over evil and suffering. Just a very small sampling. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? I think every Christian knows this deep down. Every Christian knows that God is in control. Every little kid knows that God is in control. You ever know, kids never have a problem with this, the sovereignty of God. They just look at you like, well, duh. <laughs> we have problems as we get older and we think smarter. Every Christian, I think, knows deep down that God is sovereign. Calvinists are the ones who have set it into a microphone. 
but all Christians know that God is sovereign and in control. We know that nothing bad happens unless God allows it. We know this deep down. Some will say things, and I have, like they don't believe in predestination, but they believe in the foreknowledge of God. Well, both are in the Bible. Predestination is a word in the Bible. Foreknowledge is a word in the Bible. But for some, it's harder to say God is sovereign, that God predestined this. It's harder to say that. And it's easier for them, I remember when it was for me to acknowledge, but God knew. God's foreknowledge. Of course, God knew how everything was going to turn out. God didn't plan it, but he knew about it. I can remember when that was, that was comforting to affirm. It felt less like I was putting God on the hook for things I didn't want to put him on the hook for. But think about this. To accept foreknowledge but not accept predestination. Okay, so God knew it and decided not to change it. Don't we have the same problem? So God didn't plan this. God didn't predestine this. But at some moment, he looked all down future and saw everything that was going to happen and exactly how it was going to take place and he didn't change it. Still a problem. Exodus 4.11 Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is even sovereign over the greatest evil ever committed. Acts 2.23 And Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's predestination and foreknowledge in the same sentence. He didn't just know it, he planned it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In one sentence, you're Wicked and responsible what you did, and God planned it. Same thing as in Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. You see that responsibility? You all did this, Peter says. And what did they do? To do whatever your hand, God, whatever God's hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the cross is the greatest evil ever, the greatest suffering ever, clearly predestined and planned by God. Don Carson said, the losses Job faced were on the natural plane, the result of a mixture of human malice, the Sabians, the Chaldeans, and of natural disasters, the fire, remember, the wind. But behind them stood Satan, 
And behind Satan stood God himself. So, it brings problems. But God is sovereign over evil and suffering. I don't know how to get out of that. Number four, God is good. God is good. Now, don't do something here. I'm going to encourage you not to do something right now. It's too late for some of you. I started doing it as soon as I wrote down number four. Don't take number three. What was number three? God is sovereign over evil and suffering. Friends, don't take number three and draw unbiblical conclusions. Right? I want to get I want to get logical and I'm smart and I know how this works and And so when you tell me God is sovereign over evil and suffering, now I'm going to make some conclusions. Therefore, I'm going to say in my head, therefore. So I want to say be very careful. Don't draw unbiblical conclusions when you hear that God is sovereign over evil and suffering. Conclusions like this, and I'll just give you three real quick. God is not good. That's a massive conclusion that people draw once faced with number three. God is sovereign. He's in control over evil and suffering. You mean he's got this under control? He allows it. He permits it. He ordains it. He decrees it. He plans it. He's somewhere, somehow involved. Then God is not good. So you accepted a biblical conclusion, number three, and now you stepped out and you're concluding something unbiblical. Don't do that. Or God is the author of sin. Or my suffering is God punishing me for a specific sin. These are conclusions that we start to draw, I think, when we hear that God is sovereign over evil and suffering. So no, no, no. No, God is not the author of sin. There's a difference between planning it and carrying it out. There is a difference between allowing it with good, inscrutable, indomitable intentions and doing it with evil intentions. There is a difference between purposefully permitting evil and conceiving it and carrying it out. God Please hear me say this. God does not will evil in the same way he wills good. There is a big difference between positive agency and negative agency. Now, at this point, some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. And I know that because this would have sounded like a foreign language to me years ago. Here's the reason I'm sharing these things. There are answers to these questions. There are answers to these questions in your Bible. When you hear that God is sovereign over evil and suffering and you draw the conclusion that God is the author of sin. No, he's not. 
That's an unbiblical conclusion. And so I'm just giving you a little taste so that you know that there are answers to that. There are responses to that that are biblical. Here's how the London Baptist Confession of Faith said it in chapter 3, paragraph 1. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. So what they just said was God is sovereign over everything, including evil and suffering. Yet, they know the objections just like we do, yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. So he's saying free will isn't even violated in this. Nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now you can go and read that again if you want. And you can think about it and you can study it. And... It's amazing, and it's thoroughly biblical, and it takes all of Scripture and the whole counsel of God and helps us to understand this better. But even if I don't understand it yet, here's the challenge, Christian. Even if I'm struggling to see how this logically works, and I'm telling you it does, But even if you're struggling there, which many of you will, what does the Word of God say? The Word of God says that God is sovereign even over evil and suffering. And the Word of God says God is good. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Or 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is sovereign and God is good. And God is not the author of sin and Christian Your suffering is not God punishing you for a specific sin. I think I've probably told Christians that more in counseling than just about anything. That has come up time and time again. That's what Job's friends are going to bring up to him, by the way. We feel I'm suffering. God is punishing me for some specific sin that I've committed. And so I've had to tell brothers and sisters over and over again, no, God never punishes his people. He disciplines them. And that's very different. Those are like universes apart. But God does not punish his people. Christ was punished for his people. 
And so Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. We feel like there should be, but there's not. It makes us love God more. God is good. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So we've got one more truth. Before we move on to this fifth truth, let's real quick hear the four that we've already covered. Number one, the world is full of evil and suffering. Number two, we let the evil and suffering in. Number three, God is sovereign over evil and suffering. Number four, God is good. So I said those again so that you, I hope, feel the problem of evil right now. The problem of evil is that number one, three, and four feel incompatible. That's the problem. Those feel incompatible. The world is full of evil and suffering. God is sovereign over evil and suffering. He's in control over it. God is good. Wait a minute. You feel that? What would you just do? It's like you're asking me to check my brain at the door or something. And just swallow what you're giving me. That's not the, right, the conclusion. That's, that's not the conclusion I'm drawing. That, that does not feel, it's an important word. These feelings aren't facts. But it doesn't. Do you feel that tension? The world is full of evil. God is sovereign over that evil. You could stop it. He doesn't. And God is good. It gets us back to that problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and evil exists, then he must not be all-good. And if he's all-good and evil exists, then he must not be all-powerful. But if he is, as we claim as Christians, he's all-powerful and he's all-good, then how do you explain the evil in this world? How can this be? A world of evil and suffering is proof that there is no God or it is proof that if there is a God, he's mean. That's what C.S. Lewis believed for years. He thought of God, he said, as a cosmic sadist. There's either no God or he's wicked because this world is so jacked up, so messed up, so much evil, so much pain, so much suffering. So, number five, that I hope will help us as far as the Bible helps us. Number five, evil and suffering are used by God for his glory and for the good of his people. As messed up as the world is, God, because he is sovereign, is on the hook for it. So he must have a good reason. That's, that's what the faithful should say. He's good, so he must have a good reason. We find in God's word, we learn that evil and suffering even work for God. 
evil and suffering even are tools in the hand of God. What did Luther say? The devil is God's devil. Evil and suffering are used by God for his glory and for the good of his people. So first, they're used for the glory of God. Evil and suffering are used by God for his glory. Evidently, I mean, look around. Evidently, God has decided that a world full of evil and suffering is the best way to display his glory. I mean, evidently. He's being glorified in everything. It is the aim and goal of all of creation to bring him praise, to bring him glory. So evidently, he's in control. This world could look different. One day it will, and there won't be any evil. There won't be any suffering. He will end it. So evidently, he has determined that a world full as it is now of evil and suffering is the best world in which to display his glory. If I could just say a couple things, but I'll tell you what, and I'll conclude with this. The answers are not as specific as we want. And they are not the kind of detail that that we crave when we're in the middle of suffering. And it requires faith. But we're not going to go outside the bounds of Scripture. So just a couple things. How is evil and suffering used by God for his glory? Without the reality of evil and suffering, we would not understand the justice and mercy of God. That's true. We can argue about how much evil and suffering God allows, and we can get mad, and, oh, that's too much, and you shouldn't let any, and, 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 and you should pull it back, and you should do something different here. But it is true that without the reality of evil and suffering and pain and wickedness, we would not understand the justice and the mercy of God. Justice for what? Mercy for what? His justice expressed through the punishment of the wicked would make no sense. Mercy extended to sinners would make no sense. I don't need mercy. I'm what? A world with no evil and suffering? I'm good. No justice needing needed? I'm good. So without evil and suffering, we would not understand the justice and mercy of God. That seems clear in Scripture. That answer has been given historically. I wonder if you've thought of the second one. Without the reality of evil and suffering, Jesus would not have to die. And it is in the death of Jesus that the glory of God shines most brightly. I think the ultimate reason suffering exists so that God could suffer. No religion teaches anything like that. The gospel is completely and totally unique here. 
at the very heart of God's message, at the very heart of the Bible, at the very heart of the gospel, at the very heart of the good news is evil and the sovereignty of God. And who is the one taking the brunt of all the evil? It's God himself. This takes away something that Christians or people often feel. I'm suffering, so God does not care about me. Well, how can that be if him allowing suffering means that he suffers more than anyone? It's not like God is at a distance watching us suffer. He comes, right? He comes and endures suffering beyond comprehension. okay i hate that thing absolutely hate it and i found out this week it doesn't even do anything the doorknob still hits the door that no you're okay she's <laughs> i'm not angry at her i'm not angry i'm a little I, i'm a little angry we need to remove that thing Man, it's like the worst possible time <laughs> you know but it's That is for my good. (laughs) Evil and suffering, number two, are used for the good of his people. Evil and suffering are used by God for the good of his people. So we're getting very personal here, and I think this is what we need. This is when we, we, most of the time we're not asking this question and questioning God and doubting God in in the philosophy room. It's when we are suffering. It's when pain is coming our way. And then we ask, God, what, where are you? And do you even exist? And do you love me? So listen, evil and suffering are used by God for the good of his people. Now, Romans 8, 28. I'm just telling you, it's the best verse in the Bible. Romans 8, 28 says this. And we know that for those who love God All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That says, if you love God, all things are for your good. Including what? What's our topic today? Evil, pain, suffering, tragedy, rock bottom, depression, despair. It is all being used by God for your good. Probably the greatest example of this is the life of Joseph and his words at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20. We think we have it rough. Joseph had a pretty rough go. He was on top of some mountains, and he ended up at a pretty good spot for, the best I can figure, for like 13 years it looked like he'd been abandoned by God. He hadn't, but he certainly could have felt like that when he's at the bottom of a well being abandoned by his family. He's being sold into slavery when he ends up doing a good thing and ends up being thrown in prison, thinks he's going to get out, stays in the bottom of wells, in the bottom of dungeons. God, where are you? And so at the end, he ends up in power, and his brothers come before him. They realize it's him, and they freak out. 
<laughs> this is not happening. They're standing before Joseph, and he's got all the power now. And you remember how they handled Joseph. They abandoned him. They thought he was dead. And here they are standing before him, and they're, they're cowering before him. And in chapter 50, verse 20, now I, want you, I want you to hear Joseph's perspective that evil and suffering are used by God for the good of his people. He looks at them in Genesis 50, 20 and says, As for you, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You hear Joseph's perspective? You hear what he understands? He doesn't just say, this is very different. He doesn't just say, hey, you meant this evil thing for me. And God figured out how to use this for my good. That's very different. That's foreknowledge. This is predestination. Joseph looks at his life and said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So that means way back there, you had intentions, you had something you meant, and God had intentions. He had something he meant, and you meant evil, and God meant good. What's happening with Job? What does Satan mean? He meant evil, and God meant good. God uses evil and suffering for the good of his people. In conclusion, just think about this with me. Job will never have, I'm going to spoil something that we'll learn throughout the study. If you don't know this already, Job will never have his suffering explained to him. I don't know if you knew that. I mean, here we are at the very beginning. We know what's happening. We know that God is out to prove Job's faith, and he's out to prove his own glory. Job, read the whole book. He will never have his suffering explained to him. He will never receive an explanation from God. Why he is suffering in specific detail will remain a mystery his entire life. He'll never have it explained. We also, when we're suffering, we don't know in detail why God permits specific evil. When someone asks or when we ask, why is this happening to me? Like Job, we can search for answers. But we do not find them in as much detail as we would like. We think that that's what's going to get us through. If I only knew what God is up to specifically. If I could only see into the future. If I only knew the details. Job, through the whole book, he will look for the cause of his suffering, and then Elihu will encourage him to look for the big lesson in the suffering, and he never finds any of it. And yet he remains faithful. So what was his comfort? What got him through this problem of pain? 
for those of you who are suffering today, what's the comfort in this? What is the help in this? How am I going to keep going? Or when it comes, or maybe it's somebody you love that's in it now. The comfort is this. Everything that comes my way is from the hand of God. And His hand is good. This is childlike trust at the end of the day. This is childlike faith at the end of the day. Job knows that God is sovereign over his pain. Job knows that God is behind it. Job knows that God is behind his loss and his sickness. He knows it and he affirms it in one twenty-one. He affirms it in 2.10. He affirms it throughout the book. So here is how his comfort works. And here is how our comfort works. Everything that comes my way comes from God. So what he hands me may and often does taste bitter. But here's the encouragement. Focus on the hands. Focus on the hands that are behind this, that are giving this to you. Whose hands are they? They're your father's hands. They're good hands. They're hands incapable of sin. They're hands incapable of making mistakes. They're loving hands. They're hands that have rescued you. They are hands that cherish you. And from those hands, Christian, comes everything in your life. You see how that comfort works? It's simple to understand, hard to do. I want to focus on the suffering. I want to focus on how this feels. I want to, I'm pulled into doubt. I'm pulled into despair. I need to focus on Christ. I need to focus on God. I need to focus on the hands from which all things come. So let me close with a quote from Octavius Winslow. And then we'll, we'll be done. See what it is that makes even the evil God sends to be good because he sends it. So the fact that God is good trumps everything. And when does it really become good to us? It is when God so sanctifies it that it works good in us. When God employs it to correct and remove our sins. Oh, what good have we then found in him? When it makes us more like God in his holiness. When it creates a void which God himself fills. When the spirit of prayer is roused. And Jesus, the sympathizing brother, 
becomes more precious to our souls. Oh, what good is then adduced from our evil. And for this negative good, we praise him. Let us learn from this subject to welcome all our Father's varied dealings, be they couched in good or evil. All are good. The curse removed and sin canceled by Jesus, there is no real evil, even in the most afflictive dispensation of our God. Accept then your sorrow. Receive your trial. Welcome your affliction as a good enveloped, hidden, and invisible now, but afterwards to shine forth as the sun when the storm cloud that draped it melts into light and beauty. Not my will, O my Father, but yours be done. Before long, our good will be unmixed and unmingled. No sin will embitter our happiness. No sorrow will becloud our joy. Our sun shall no more go down. Neither shall the moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be an everlasting light, and the days of our mourning shall be ended. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for your truth that helps us to understand this world that helps us to understand ourselves, that helps us most importantly to understand you. We pray that you would use this teaching for our good. Help those who are here and struggling. Help those who will struggle to be comforted in knowing that you have great purpose in all that you do. We pray that that which comforted Job will comfort each of us when we need it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.